According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are leaving uh, Galatians. That was last hour. This hour, we are in Isaiah. Join me, if you would, in Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12. Oh, look at that. It's only six verses long. We will cover this chapter today. This is, uh, has been our blessing to cover the book of Isaiah, chapter by chapter, Sunday by Sunday. It is still my goal. And the Lord has, at least through 11 chapters, provided for us to handle one chapter per Sunday. Obviously, in a format such as this, we don't get into all the detail. We don't plunge into all the depths. But that's why we have first hour, Sunday morning. That's why we have Wednesday night. In those studies, we can plunge into the depths and go into some of the greater detail. Um, in this hour, I like to give the big picture, the larger view of uh, Scripture. And so uh, I'm enjoying the, the uh, format as it is, even when I complain. I'm still enjoying the format for what it is. All right, Isaiah 12. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. All right, before we get started, let's take time for silent prayer. Let's ask God the Father to humble us, to set aside distractions, to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, again, once again, we're here. We thank you, Father, for bringing us here. We thank you for your faithfulness in allowing us to be here. We're thankful that here is a lampstand where the Word of God goes forth. And Father, in your faithfulness, you have made provision that we might study to show ourselves approved. We recognize that we haven't earned it or deserved it. This is a grace provision from you. And Father, we want to be humble before you. We want to acknowledge that to whom much is given shall much be required. And this is a flock that has been given so much, Father. Such a depth of teaching and such a wealth of teaching. You have um, blessed uh, these believers here and we want to respond to that blessing. We want to live out this truth. Not just learn it, but live it, Father. So I pray on this day that we would live it, that we would learn it so that we can live it. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Just a, a quick note. I... Uh, I'm a little overwhelmed this weekend, given that Thursday and Friday I had a chance to have my first ever trip to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I would thank you for your prayers on that. And the, the funeral service was was marvelous. There were uh, two salvations that very night, and I believe possibly a third one this morning. So uh, I'll be responding to text messages and email later today. But um, it, part of why it was so overwhelming was the blessing of uh, being in Patrian Church or Southwood Bible Church and the heritage that's there with uh, Glenn Carnegie and Dan Hill and now Eric Bush, the third pastor now of that church. And so anyway, I appreciate uh, your prayers on that behalf. And it's really come to uh, crystallize in my mind anyway, uh, how, how faithful the Lord is to preserve lampstands the way that he does. And the fact that there's still today a lampstand in Austin, Texas, is a testimony to how, how faithful our Lord is in, uh, in all these things. All right, so thank you for those prayers. Um, Isaiah chapter 12, then you will say on that day. And so it's kind of unfortunate that we have the chapter division where we do, because this does follow so on the heels of chapter 11. But on chapter 11, you recall that we were talking about the return of Christ. We're talking about his righteous reign in the millennial kingdom and the glories that are going to happen on this earth when God the Son, Jesus Christ, is seated in Jerusalem. He will reign from Jerusalem on the throne of David. And the glory that that's going to be when Jesus Christ himself is here. If, uh, if you're voting for and praying for and hoping for a perfect government or perfect politicians, uh, in the meantime, I don't want to discourage you, but I want to tell you the truth, they're not going to come. We will not have perfect government or perfect politicians or perfect elections. When Jesus Christ returns, then we will see perfect righteous government on this earth. And so this is what we were dealing with uh, a week ago. 
with respect to the regathering of Israel for the second time, with respect to the blessings of the kingdom of Jesus Christ when he is seated in Jerusalem. So it's on that day that we have in the context of chapter 12. Then you will say on that day. Here is the order of worship for Israel in the coming millennial kingdom. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Verse 4, and in that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among his peoples. I'm sorry, among the peoples. That's important, and to misspeak on that I think is tragic. All right, make known his deeds among the peoples, the Jewish people and their mission to the Gentiles in the millennial kingdom. Make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. All right, there it is. Six verses, short enough, and yet with enough meat that, uh, boy, we could spend a lot of time here. First of all, we've got to talk about anger. All right, the Lord is an angry God. The Lord expresses anger when appropriate. The Lord's anger is slow and it is short. And when God is complete with his anger, it gives way to comfort. The Lord's anger is slow and short, then gives way to comfort. And this is characteristic not just of Isaiah 12, but it is, it is consistent throughout the entire Old Testament record, all right, that he is slow to anger, but abounding in loving kindness, we're told. Again and again and again, this is the nature of our God and who he is. The Lord's anger is slow and short and gives way to comfort. The coming tribulation, by the way, is the time of Jacob's trouble. It is the time of God's wrath, the time of his anger. It is poured forth, first of all, upon his own people so that they will repent. And then secondly, it's poured out upon the Gentile nations for their hostility and and adversarial role against his people. And I pray that our nation learns this lesson now while we're on the verge. I understand I saw a headline yesterday, our president is on the verge of assigning sanctions to the nation of Israel for the first time ever. And uh, anyway, keep that in prayer. Regardless, I don't care what your politics are, Genesis 12 says, I will bless those who bless you, the one who curses you, I will curse. And if if our nation finds itself cursing Israel, I tremble. And I pray that, uh, that God will step in there. Now, Although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. This is going to be their song after Armageddon. This is going to be the song of Israel when they are restored to fellowship, when they are brought into their kingdom of blessing. In fact, this becomes the theme for the final part of the book. This becomes the theme later in Isaiah, starting in chapter 40. Remember, there's a huge hinge in between chapter 39 and chapter 40. So much so that some uh, liberal theologians and some other crazy approaches to Scripture think that there were two different authors, or even three different authors of the book of Isaiah, right? We reject all that. Jesus said Isaiah wrote Isaiah, so we're fine with that. But in chapters 1 through 39, we have a major section that has an awful lot of wrath, an awful lot of judgment, an awful lot of prophecies related to wrath and judgment. But starting in chapter 40, we have this great message of comfort. Comfort, O comfort. And it begins in chapter 40. And we have the parallel, you might remember, between the books of the Bible and the book of Isaiah. 66 chapters in Isaiah, 66 books of the Bible. 39 of those are Old Testament books. 27 of those are New Testament books. And we have the same division in Isaiah with 39 chapters that we can relate to Old Testament themes. And then starting in chapter 40, like starting with Matthew in the New Testament, we have 27 chapters of peace, of comfort, of blessing, of joy, of looking forward to the good things ahead. So Isaiah itself, the book of Isaiah, is like a miniature Bible that gives us the roadmap for what we're looking at in the larger Bible. You will notice in Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 54 that we have, again, reference that's made to the uh, anger of the Lord that gives way to 
comfort. Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, and then Isaiah 54, verses 7 and 8. Isaiah 40 begins, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sin. Last hour I mentioned the, the concept of double compound discipline, the concept that God's people, judgment begins at the house of the Lord, and those to whom are accountable are accountable on a double basis. The tribulation is Israel receiving double portion wrath for their rejection of, of the Lord, for their rejection of God's word. And then you'll notice a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. We have here prophetically our first introduction to John the Baptist, our first introduction to the herald, to the forerunner, to the, uh, the one who comes to proclaim the arrival of baby Jesus in the manger, all right? See, how we're going to get some Christmas messages in here, all right? We have in Isaiah chapter 40, the introduction here to the herald as he uh, is the one that brings this message of comfort. Over to Isaiah 54, verses 7 and 8. And there's a larger context for this as well, but um, in Isaiah 54... Verse 7 says, For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. Okay? Identifying, of course, that brief is a matter of perspective. I tell my child that something will be happening briefly, or we will do something shortly. And I mean, you know, maybe in the next couple years or whatever, and, you know, that's fairly brief. She expects it's going to be, or he expects it's going to be in the next 10 minutes. Any, any child has that perspective. Well, with God, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. And when he says, for a brief moment, I forsook you, um, understand this is on God's timetable and in his wisdom. But with great compassion, I will gather you. Verse 8, in an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you. And the contrast there couldn't be starker between anger and compassion, between an outburst and forever, okay? The outburst is, is short. The outburst is, is sure, it's, it's sudden, it's intense, but it's done, and then there's the forever, and there's the, the, con, the contrast there. Uh, so with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So stay tuned. We're going to be in these themes uh, coming up in these later chapters. But recognize that slow to anger is among the most frequent descriptions of the Lord God. I struggle to find any description of the Lord God. Maybe maybe that he's holy, perhaps, or other references to God that describe him. What kind of God is God? All right. And in searching the scriptures to find descriptions, what kind of God is God? I'm not sure you're going to find very many at all, if any at all, that are more common than slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And we have it again and again and again in Exodus 34.6 and Numbers 14.18, Nehemiah 9.17, Psalm 86.15. And you say, well, isn't one verse enough? Haven't you made your point? God says, no, I'm going to make my point and make my point and make my point and keep making my point because human beings need it pounded into us. <laughs> the repetition reinforces it and causes us to not forget what it is that he keeps hammering away. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. You know, right there in Exodus, Exodus 34, 6, what's happening at that time? Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law, and what are the people doing down at the bottom of the mountain? Right? They're fornicating. They're, they're committing adultery. They, they built the golden calf. They're doing all this wicked stuff while Moses is up there on the mountain getting the law. Right? Getting the very Ten Commandments to come down and say, uh, thou shalt not uh, do what you're doing right now. Okay? And yet God is so patient. And He's so gracious. And that anger is slow because He's giving the time to repent. But when repentance doesn't take place, slow is not forever. All right? Slow finally reaches the point that no longer can justice be deferred. And so then the anger strikes. And the anger strikes and accomplishes its purpose. 
See, God doesn't just lash out without a purpose, and God doesn't just lash out without effect. Very effective in his anger. Because he's administering justice in a way that brings us back to repentance in a way that patience didn't do. So, so uh, we have these verses here. Psalm 86, 15. Psalm 103 in verse 8. Psalm 145 in verse 8. Joel 2, 13. Jonah, I love Jonah. Jonah was complaining about the fact that God was so slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Jonah was pouting over the fact that because God was so slow that Nineveh didn't get zapped and that Nineveh had time to repent. And Nineveh did repent and the angels were happy, God was happy, and the Assyrians were happy. Everybody was happy except Jonah and uh, who uh, went up on a hilltop and started to pout underneath, underneath that tree. And then Nahum 1.3 is the final... Final reference there. Now, do we need to see every single one of these, or are you convinced already? Well, it won't take a whole lot of time, and we've only got six verses to cover. But I think we have a few moments to at least look at a few of these. Exodus 34, 6. Because in addition to this point, there's more. Just because God's slow to anger doesn't mean that we bank on that, or that we abuse that, or we take advantage of that. And say, well, I can get away with a little bit because God's slow to anger. And as long as I only do a little bit of sinning, then I can get right back with the Lord again. And then, wait a minute, okay? That's why we should take a look at these verses and realize, yes, he's slow to anger, but he will not be mocked, all right? We, we do reap what we, slow, uh, what we sow. And uh, we don't want to lose sight of those principles either. Exodus 34 and verse 6. The, uh, this is uh, kind of a fun verse here, a proclamation. As the Lord, in verse 5, descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, you'll notice. And it goes on, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Ultimately speaking, in other parallel passages, this is cited as a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. If you're trying to bank on the fact that God's slow to anger, you're banking on the wrong thing, all right? that uh, you will reap what you sow. There is punishment, particularly the willful, uh, the punishment for willful transgressions. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the grandchildren, to the third and to the fourth generations. That is such an important principle, and I wish I had time to stop and give a whole doctrine on that. But I don't. Numbers 14.8. Numbers 14.8. people are uh, ready to rebel at this point. They sent the spies into the land. Twelve spies went in. They checked it out. Everything's great except the giants that are living there. And so uh, ten out of the twelve spies say, uh, nope, we've got to go back to Egypt. We can't, uh, we can't conquer these people. We can't take this land. And since, uh, obviously, in a, in a good democracy, majority is always right, and they took a vote, and uh, ten to two was the vote. Okay, wrong. All right. Uh, besides, it's not a democracy anyway. It's a theocracy. What God says is what we obey. And uh, so all the congregations now in rebellion, and they're going to fire Moses and fire Aaron and find new leaders. And they start to grumble to say, God only brought us out here so he could kill us, right? How stupid is that? If God wanted to kill him, he could have dropped the Red Sea on him, <laughs> right? Or he could have killed him in Egypt before putting him in the Red Sea. So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And so in verse 5 of Numbers 14, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, here's the two faithful spies, they uh, tore their clothes and spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel. And now they're going to make this defense and they're going to plead and uh, try to get their countrymen to um, have a divine viewpoint perspective on who God is, what he's doing, and how he's 
brought them this far. He didn't bring them this far just to dump them. All right. In any event, in the process of this, they speak, Moses speaks, the sermon goes on. When we get down to verse 18 is when Moses reminds them of these truths. He says, you realize we can't go back to Egypt. God won't let us go back to Egypt. If we went back to Egypt, then the nations would start boasting. The nations would start making their accusations. And um, they'll say, well, God couldn't bring him into the land. God couldn't kill those giants. God couldn't give them the land flowing with milk and honey. So um, this is kind of the accusations that will make. Uh, verse 15, if you slay these people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your, na- of your fame will start saying, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them. God couldn't do it. And the, and the Gentile nations will start boasting and bragging. Hmm. So he says, now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third to the fourth generation. All right, so these are the principles. Yes, he's slow to anger, but the guilty will be by no means unpunished. Gets repeated again in Nehemiah. We'll pass by that. Too hard to find anyway. Psalm 86, 15. I'm teasing. Psalm 86, 15. I should have started with Nehemiah. Go to the obscure ones first and bless some people with verses they hadn't seen in 20 years. All right, Psalm 86, 15. You know, we can, we can claim these promises in our own personal life, in our personal conflicts. Because he says, O God, arrogant men have risen up against me. A band of violent men have sought my life. And they have not set you before them. So are you under attack? Do unbelievers hate you? You got some uh, awful things going on in your life? A boss, a co-worker, whoever, all right. But you, O Lord, are a, gracious, merci- are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. So this is not just, what I'm trying to say, this is not just a national promise. We can claim this on a personal basis. Never lose sight of who God is, what kind of a God God is. Because again and again and again and again, we're told that he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. All right. That's the first big idea I get out of this chapter is that the Lord's anger is slow and short and gives way to comfort. Secondly, though, we need to start personalizing our salvation. Personalizing your salvation allows a present walk of faith. Personalizing your salvation. That means you're laying claim to it. You're making it yours. He is the God of your salvation. Personalizing your salvation allows a present walk of faith. We start to identify that the faith that saved us is the faith I'm supposed to continue walking in. And that when I make it personal, when it becomes real, now I start to live that out. Or as the New Testament would say, to work out your salvation in fear and in trembling. And so in verses 2 and 3 here of Isaiah chapter 12, let me get back to our text. In verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah chapter 12, notice how personal this becomes on that day. Behold, God is my salvation. Yes, He's the Savior of the world. Yes, He's the Savior of everybody. But for the moment, I'm forgetting all of that. I'm just focusing in on what God has done for me. He is my Savior. He had me personally in mind. When Jesus Christ was on that cross... He had me personally in mind. He accepted my sins, my wrath. He took my place. I have placed my faith in Him. He is my Savior. God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Why is that repeated twice? Why does it say in the first part that he is my salvation? And then it says in the last part, he has become my salvation. I find this wonderful. 
There is, there's, there's poetry to this in the Hebrew, but there's concepts here that reinforce that getting saved is not the end of God's plan. But what happens after you're saved? The God who already is your salvation will yet again become your salvation. And he will become your salvation today, tomorrow, the next day, again and again and again, until ultimately, as was the case for Steve Arnold last week, you'll be, he will be your ultimate salvation when he will deliver you from this entire world and bring you into glory. So he is and he will become. So I will trust and not be afraid. If I keep him foremost in my thinking, what, what would I possibly have to be afraid of? Right? Physical danger, health, earthly testing. Every earthly testing kind of shrinks the greater my God becomes. And the inverse is also true. If you start neglecting these verses, if you start forgetting the God who saved you, if you, if you in just your daily life have a very small God, you're going to have some pretty big problems. Okay? I believe your problems grow in inverse corollary to how big your God is in your sight day by day. And that's what we're seeing here in this verse. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song. The creator of the universe, the very arm of God that created this universe is now watching over me. Wow. Okay. That kind of puts my problems into perspective, doesn't it? I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song. Don't just enjoy his strength and fail to sing about it. He is your strength and your song. What else are you going to sing about? Sing about Him. To Him be the glory. See, identifying what He has already done emboldens us to trust what He has promised to do. This is the a fortiori principle. He's done so much already. How can He not do even more? Saving us was the hardest thing He could possibly do because saving us cost him the life of his son. So now that he's done that, what can he not do? (laughs) Now that he's done that, see, so identifying what he has already done emboldens us to trust what he has promised to do. This is what faith is. Faith isn't you just in your human ability wanting something to be so. You and your human ability thinking, you know, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. That's not, that's not faith. Faith is, I know he can. Faith is responding to his promise. Faith is knowing that God's not a liar. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And God, I believe that because you are faithful. If you place your faith in someone that's faithless, then your faith is worthless. But if you place your faith in God... Your faith is infinite because he is infinitely faithful. Exodus 15, 2, Psalm 27, 1, Romans 8, 32. All of these principles highlight the fact that what he has already done <laughs> gives us all the comfort in the world. In our lives, in our parents' lives, you can trust that he has been faithful. He will always be faithful. Exodus 15, 2. You know, and you, you see a loved one pass, you see, you know, and it's on my mind a lot because of the funeral and, and that, but, or even my mother two years ago, and you see all of these examples, and you watch, and you see, you know what? God was faithful. God was faithful throughout their entire life. God never once left them, never once deserted them, never once forsook them. He's going to be faithful in my life. Exodus 15, 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God, but I will extol him. Again, make it personal. Make it personal. I try to tell our teenagers this. You know, I'm not just your parents' pastor. I'm your pastor. Make it personal. Start to realize, you know something? You're going to grow up and leave home one day. You're going to follow in the example they set. Are you going to venture out and do your own thing? Here's what the Lord says. But you're going to have to do it in your own volition, in your own priesthood, in your own viewpoint. It does you no good to just do it because, well, Dad wants me to. All right, so that's Exodus 15 two, Psalm 27 and verse 1. 
Somebody said, boy, we, we flip a lot of Bible verses in this church. Said, yeah, we probably do. Psalm 27, verse 1. Are you saying that's a bad thing? <laughs> All right. I like to search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. Compare Scripture to Scripture. Make sure, you know, check it out. See, is this real? Is this really what God's saying here? Is the pastor just spinning something up there? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Put your God up there side by side with your adversary and laugh. (laughs) Because he who sits in the heavens laughs, right? Just realize, man, God can deal with anything I'm dealing with. Even if it's a a band or a camp or whatever else. 10,000 will fall at one side. Romans 8.32 is this a fortiori principle. Look what God has already done. We taught this when we were in the Romans series back in Romans chapter 8. If you can bench press 300 pounds, you can bench press 10 pounds, right? I mean, is that just a no-brainer? If you can run a marathon, you are capable of a 100-yard dash. That just makes sense. That's just the way it works. If you are capable of doing the greater, then it's within your capacity to do the lesser. And this is what God describes our salvation as. The salvation is the greater. The salvation is the greatest. It is the infinite. It cost him the infinite price of his beloved son. Nothing else he will ever do on our behalf will be as costly as our salvation. And so in Romans 8, this this marvelous encouragement here, verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And who cares, right? (laughs) Who is against us and who cares anyway? It doesn't matter. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now that that hard work is done, now that he is alive and resurrected and ascended and glorified, he's already done the hardest thing ever in the history of the universe. How can he not now freely give us all things? It is, it is, it is unthinkable that God can't solve your problems, that he can't meet your needs, that he doesn't care. Of course he cares. He cares enough that he gave his son. And so we identify with what he's already done. And, you know, Paul did this. He comes crawling into Corinth on his missionary journey and everything was awful. But he says, you know, I was determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Sometimes we just go back to that and say, Lord, I know I'm saved. <laughs> I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. Never lose sight of the God who saved you. I have to believe that this was part of the fruit of the funeral service up in Tulsa. Because all the unbelievers that were there, and all the crying and all the tears, they saw stability. They saw faith. They saw hope. And they couldn't understand it. (laughs) Because they didn't have it. (laughs) All right, And that in itself becomes a testimony. It opens up the eyes to say, there is something beyond this life. This present walk of faith includes the grace blessings of personal evangelism. Verse 3 now of chapter 12. is a therefore. Right? What do we do every time we see a therefore? That's right. We ask what it's there for. Yeah. And it's therefore to make the explanation, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. All right? You will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Now, if you're already saved, why do you need water from the springs of salvation? Now, you don't, but somebody else does. That's the point. We become a spring, as Jesus said in John chapter 4, from his innermost being will spring forth springs of living water. We get to become the conduits through which God in our life, we get to witness and testify and give the gospel. All right? Are you a little rusty on how you give the gospel? Well, don't be start giving it start giving it and the more you do the less rusty you're going to be and also every time you give the gospel sure you're you're 
reaching out to others. You're giving, you know, yes, you're having an effect amongst those that hear you, but more than that, you're, you're blessing yourself. Because every time you tell the story, you're reminding yourself of everything God has done for you. I love to tell the story to those who know it best. Okay? We tell it to ourselves, we tell it to one another, to, to fellow Christians. And even the process of evangelizing, if they laugh at you, if they mock you, they reject it, they say, no, that's a load of garbage. If they, whatever they say in rejecting the gospel, you are still blessed for having spoken it. How beautiful are, are the feet of those who bring good news, all right? As your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So we see here, I will trust and not be afraid. He has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. We become the conduits for this living water. It's a concept that uh, gets expanded again in the comfort portion of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. You know, the best part of this, the best part about grace is that it's free. All right? It is free to us because he paid the price. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. These living waters, in addition to bread and wine and milk. Isaiah 55 starts with, ho. <laughs> I like those. Ho. And get your attention. Okay. Ho. That's an attention getter. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come. And you who have no money, come. Buy and eat. Well, how do you buy if you have no money? How do you buy if you have no money? Right? And my kids do it all the time. Because <laughs> somebody else has the money. <laughs> all right? But he, here's the thing. Christ paid it all. We get to make the purchase, however, because he paid the price. Come, buy wine and milk. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? You're living your life in, in externals, in physical things. You're chasing after career and materialism and all this earthly stuff. None of that matters. None of that's eternal. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. All right? Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may have. See, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We're proclaiming this free gift. They can come, they can obtain. As Jesus told the woman at the well, if you'd known who was asking you for this water, you'd have asked of me. And I'd given you the living water. Okay, that's John chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. We'll be there shortly. Um, but here it is. Here's an Old Testament gospel. Here is a, a, a passage. This is why Nicodemus is without excuse. Okay, the metaphor is different as far as being born again, but the doctrine is the same. It is faith in Christ, all right? It is responding to the offer. It is accepting the gift and doing so without cost. It doesn't cost you a thing. You can't earn it, can't deserve it, can't work for it. Psalm 36, verses uh, 7 through 9. Hmm. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. This is the chesed loving kindness many of us are very fond of. How precious is your chesed loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Right? We sing that hymn, Under Thy Wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light... We see light. In your light, we see light. See, these are the abundant waters. Now, we're already past this point. We've already consumed, but we keep on consuming. We keep on sharing. We make these offers. We want 
unbelievers that don't know the joy we know, why would we not want them to become partakers? Great opportunities for evangelism. John chapter 4. Here's the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Here's the New Testament now. See, it's not just Old Testament. Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was prophetic, looking forward to the cross. In the New Testament, we start to see the fulfillment of that and the realities of it. In John chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. By the way, if you want more on this, we've got a Life of Christ notebook. Every passage in the Gospels is covered. We've got audio teachings. I don't remember how many hours it was for John chapter 4, but there's a lot of teaching on the website. We can get you a disc if you want more on the life of Christ. Understand what's happening here is Jesus and the disciples are uh, traveling north and they're uh, in such a hurry because of some of the persecution and whatever that they don't go the normal route. The normal route, if you can imagine, is to go east across the river, then north, and then back west into, uh, into Galilee. So that in be- because in between Judea and Galilee were those nasty Samaritans, all right? And who wants to go through there? See, it'd be like going from Texas over to Arkansas and then up to Missouri and then back over into Kansas because you just couldn't bring yourself to drive through Oklahoma, <laughs> all right? For instance, just a, just a, a thing. And that's, but believe it or not, such was the hostility between Samaritans and Jews that they would rather go the long way around than to pass through Samaria. And yet, here they are. Not only are they here, but they fled out of town pretty quickly, didn't buy provisions, now they've got to buy some food. Man, they're going to pay some top dollar for that food, let me tell you. Samaritans are going to make some, make some good money um, selling at uh, the inflated prices to these Jewish uh, people coming through. So Jesus is outside the town. He's waiting by this well. He sends the disciples in there to buy food. It's going to take them quite a while. And while that's taking place, this woman comes out to the well. And this is the context for this story. And this this is such a a wonderful story in so many different ways. So uh, there came a woman, verse 7 of Samaria, to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And his disciples had gone in a way to the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman was just shocked. How is it that you being a Jew... Ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman. And there's other details behind here too. This is not the normal morning water gathering time. She's not here when all the other respectable women of the town come out to get their water, all right, where they can chit-chat and visit and, and fellowship and get their water and then go back and start their day, all right? She gets there in the off hours so that uh, in, in, because of her personal life and some of the shame and what she's dealing with, she's there by herself. But it's exactly the right moment when she can come face to face with the Lord. And so uh, the explanation there, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would, ask, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew you were face to face with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you could have had this living water. The living water Isaiah spoke of, the living water we're talking about this morning, you yourself become the conduit of living water in evangelizing this lost and dying world. So she says to him, Sir, you have no, nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She's All she can think of is earthly stuff. It's a deep well. If you don't have a bucket, don't have a rope, what are you going to do? How are you going to get the water out of that well? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well? And Jesus answered and said, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give shall never thirst. See, once you're saved, you're always saved. Once you're saved, you never thirst again. It's a powerful eternal security passage here. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. See, now you're the source for other people to obtain this living water. You're the conduit through which this living water flows. And so the woman says, Sir, give me this water, for I'll not be thirsty or come to the way all the way here to draw. It's a long walk to the well. It'd be great if I could be my own well and just, uh, you know, tap a spigot in me somehow. <laughs> you see, she's sarcastic. 
she's, she's not following what he's trying to tell her. And then he exposes her and says, well, go get your husband, come back here. I love this. This is, if you understand grace in this passage, is, you're just going to fall in love with it. Because the woman said, I have no husband. And he said to her, you're, you're right about that. You correctly said you have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. Boom. <laughs> okay? Man. And the neat thing about it is that she wasn't immediately offended. She wasn't immediately scandalized. She wasn't uh, all upset about how he exposed her whole past and all the rest of that. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> And she's got this burning theological question that's been on her mind for years. You know, the Samaritans say this is a holy mountain. The Jews say Jerusalem's a holy mountain. The Samaritans have her own Samaritan Pentateuch. You guys got a Hebrew Pentateuch. And, and uh, who's right? Who's wrong? Anybody that can tell me my whole past like that has to be a prophet. And I'm going to get some answers right here, right now. And she's not offended at all. Or if she is, she's much more overwhelmed by the opportunity to learn truth. And I love this. And, and this, is, this is so special. And when you're witnessing, when you're evangelizing, and, and you've, you encounter folks that think that their past is a, a barrier to getting saved or some kind of an obstacle that says, well, you don't know what I've done. And well, I'm a, I'm a really, I've got a bad, I'm a bad person. Or I've, forget all of that. It's irrelevant. Who cares? Living water is for you. And, and any of that is going to be washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ anyway. It's a beautiful promise. And not only do you get to partake of the living water, you're going you're to drink that living water when you believe in Jesus Christ. That's the metaphor. You drink the living water when you believe in Jesus Christ. You never thirst again. So why do you need more water if you never thirst again? Why does it become within you a spring of living water if you never thirst again? Because you're not the one drinking it again and again and again. It's your evangelism to this lost and dying world. It's the water that you're offering to others, to those that are still thirsting, to those that are still without Christ, without hope, without eternal life. So the, the powerful thing about witnessing is you don't have to be this, this big Billy Graham evangelist out there doing all this fancy stuff. You're just a, you're just a, a sinner saved by grace telling another sinner how you got the grace you got and what's available for them, right? A drowning man that told, uh, told about the life, life, the life preserver that was thrown to you. That's all you are. Just a sinner saved by grace saying, look, the Lord reach me and he can reach you. It's a great message. So we want to personalize our salvation. We want to make it my salvation. Don't try to get up there and tell the Billy Graham story. Get up there and tell your story. All right? Because that's where he reached you. Talk about the faithfulness of the Lord and offer that living water, that living water. It's you, all right? Don't say, oh, you know, uh, let, me, let me go get my pastor. He'll tell you what to do. Or, oh, oh, let me get Fallon. She's an evangelist, right? Sometimes I think Fallon can sneeze on you and you get saved. <laughs> Teasing, all right, but... Don't you dare. If Jesus Christ presents before you a gospel opportunity, an unbeliever comes to you and says, what must I do to be saved? Okay, or words to that effect, right? They come to you and say, you know, what is this Jesus you know about? That's your open door. That's your open door. So you open your mouth, <laughs> all right? And provide that living water. Talk about the Lord. Tell them, tell them what the Lord has done. Uh, similar uh, emphasis in John chapter 7, verses 37 through, uh, through 39. And uh, here it's food and uh, food to eat, bread to eat, and uh, his blood to drink, and similar thing. Eating and drinking is a faith metaphor. I think I'm going to have to skip through that or we'll, we'll run out of time. It's only six verses. This should be easy, right? All right. Verses four through six. The great things God has done are worthy of global proclamation. The great things God has done are worthy of global proclamation. Verses four through six now. Global proclamation. 
The great things God has done are worthy of global proclamation. Great is the Lord and greatly is He to be praised. You know, it's, it's tragic how many folks are saved by grace, but they're like undercover Christians. You would never know. You'd have to ask them for three forms of ID, and even then they would say, oh, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. What are you talking about? All right. We should be proclaiming loudly and proudly and boldly and to, shouting from the, the mountaintops. And ultimately speaking, globally, he died for the sins of the whole world. Where should we not be proclaiming the great things that God has done? Now, ultimately, this will happen in, from, starting from Israel in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is Israel's destiny to be the gospel nation to the Gentiles. It is Israel's destiny. The Jewish people have, as their promise from God, the expectation that they will proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentile nations of this world. All right? Father, wherever that siren's going, be with them, bless them. Minister your truth. Thank you in Christ's name. All right. In that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on His name. It is a call to worship in that day. Make known His deeds among the peoples, the Gentiles. Israel will have the the leadership role in the Millennial Kingdom. Make them remember that His name is exalted. Make them remember. It's a fun uh, expression there. Praise the Lord in song, for He has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. You ever wonder why people sing about the things they sing about? Why do the unbelievers sing about what they sing about? And all these other religions, why do they even sing? I think there's a component of humanity that enjoys music, enjoys singing. We're created that way in God's image. God is himself creative. Musicians are largely creative. Musicians think differently than other people. All right? And part of that is the the creativeness of imagining a a tune, a melody to go with the lyrics, or imagining a a, a, a beat, or a, 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 well, talk to Doug after class; he'll explain it. Um, but that's the creativity of a musician, or an artist, or all the facets of human creativity. He designed us that way. But what do the unbelievers sing about? You know, they sing about love, but what do they even know? Do they know anything about love, right? Do they know the uh, the first thing about love? Doug and I were introduced to a song last week about, I never knew a real love song until I heard about Calvary, until I heard how Jesus died on the cross. Then for the first time in my life, I knew what a real love song was all about. So sing, the whole world's going to sing. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The millennium is going to be a great place of singing, great place of worship. Israel will faithfully testify to the nations of the earth throughout the millennial kingdom. And this is a shock because in their their past, Israel never did this very well. (laughs) In their past, throughout the Old Testament, Israel was constantly being defiled by the Gentile nations around them. They were constantly pursuing false gods. They were constantly fornicating. They were constantly worshiping in all kinds of spiritual adultery. Very seldom did Israel fulfill what they were called to do in the Old Testament. You'd have occasionally a good king like a David or a Hezekiah, but they were few and far between. For the most part, Israel failed to be the covenant nation in the gospel proclamation to the Gentile nations. That will not be the case in the millennial kingdom. They will be faithful in the millennial kingdom. It's almost the opposite. At the end of the millennium, when the Gog-Magog rebellion occurs, all the Gentile nations are gathered around Jerusalem. I think at that point, the only faithful nation left is going to be Israel. Can you imagine? The only faithful nation left on the planet at the conclusion of the millennial kingdom is the Jewish nation. Anyway, you can read Isaiah 66, verses 18 and 19 there. And Zechariah 8. Grab these real quickly. Isaiah 66. What's 66? The back of the book, right? The end of the Bible, the end of Isaiah. Isaiah 
For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them. See, in the past, God limited his glory to the holy place. He limited his glory to Israel. He limited his glory to the Shekinah. He limited his glory to the the baby in the manger. But now the whole world, every Gentile nation, will see his glory. To gather all the nations and tongues, they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish, Put, Lud, all these places. And uh, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. They never had a Shekinah glory in their midst. They never had a holy of holies. And they never had a a virgin-born babe born in the manger. Israel had all those blessings before, but now the world is going to be blessed because of Israel's testimony. And they will declare my glory among the nations. They're going to be the faithful witnesses throughout the tribulation. And then Zechariah 8. Zechariah 8. The minor prophet that should be a major prophet. I love Zechariah. Zechariah 8. Can we promote him somehow? Bugs me that he's lumped in with the other minor prophets. But Zechariah 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, go to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I love this, verse 23, in those days, 10 men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew. Ten Gentiles, you know, an American, a Russian, a Frenchman, a Ukrainian, a whatever, a Filipino, a Kenyan. Ten Gentiles will grasp the nation, the garment of one Jew, saying, let us go with you. We have heard that God is with you. The blessing that Israel will have is the covenant nation in the millennial kingdom. Israel will lead all the earth in singing the Lord's glory. Israel will lead all the earth in singing the Lord's glory. Psalm 68, Psalm 98, Psalm 105. These are millennial in their ultimate application. Psalm 68, verses 32 through 35. Psalm 98, verses 1 through 9. Psalm 105, verses 1 through 8. Yeah, what does the world sing about today? Sometimes they sing about horrible stuff. Won't be the case in the millennium. They will be singing the glories of Jesus Christ and the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. I was puzzling that last week. What does the atheists do on Thanksgiving? Who are they thankful for? Who are they thankful to? Do they thank Darwin? I mean, what do they, what do they thank? Do they thank evolution, random chance? All right. Why do they give gifts at Christmas? All right. You know, in communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But after he comes, what do we proclaim? We proclaim everything. The greatness of what he does. We will marvel at him. In 2 Thessalonians 1.10, it says he comes to be marveled at among all who believe. Communion is done as a ritual with the rapture of the church. It is only for the bride. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That ritual is over when the church age is complete. But after he does come, even a, an even greater glory and marveling will occur. See, we proclaim the Lord's death. In communion, we proclaim what he did on the cross. And we're waiting for him to come again. It's an even greater proclamation when he does come again. Because we proclaim the cross, we proclaim the crown, we proclaim everything that Jesus Christ has accomplished in victory. After he does come, even an even greater glory and marveling will occur. All right, I'm just about out of time. I have to pick one of those. Trusting in the sovereignty of God, I'll pick Psalm 68. Psalm 68. You'll have to look up the other ones on your own. All right. Psalm 68, verses 32 through 35.
Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth, sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides upon the highest heavens, which are from ancient times, behold, he speaks forth with his voice, a mighty voice. Ascribe strength to God, his majesty is over Israel, his skies, his strength is in the skies. O God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. The God of Israel himself gives strength and power to the people. Blessed be God. This song will be sung in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, and all the nations will be taught to sing this, worshiping Jesus Christ for all he has accomplished. Father, I do thank you. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the book of Isaiah. I thank you for the great doctrine that's contained in this book, the encouragement and comfort that it contains, for the gospel information that it contains, Father, the invitation to come and to buy without cost, because the price has already been paid. It's free to us because your son already paid the price. Father, I do thank you. I thank you that in the consequence of Friday's funeral service that folks heard and they responded. They accepted your free gift. And maybe on this day, maybe right here, right now, this morning, someone is sitting here that that has for the first time seen that the free gift is available for them too. And maybe on this day, right now, right where they sit, with their heads bowed and their eyes closed, they don't have to walk an aisle or, or get baptized or give money to a church. Right here, right now, with their heads bowed and their eyes closed, they can trust. They can trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, that they can obtain that salvation simply by accepting the gift freely offered, trusting in Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, I thank you for your son. I thank you that this is the holiday season where we get together with family and friends and in some cases unbelievers. And the opportunity is there to speak of the babe in the manger, to speak of why he came humbly, why he humbled himself so as to accomplish our salvation. I pray that we will be equipped to tell that story, to testify to the life and the death of your son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.